רגע, לפני שמתחילים, אם אתם יכולים, בבקשה, דרגו אותנו באפליקציית הפודקאסטים שלכם. זה מאוד מאוד יעזור לנו להפיץ את הבשורה של הערוץ ליותר אנשים. ממש תודה רבה לכם. פתיח ומתחילים. We all know that DNA is important, but my guest today is going to explain that it is the most important thing. What does it mean and what are the moral consequences of that? My guest today is Professor Robert Plumming. Professor Robert J. Plumming is an American psychologist and geneticist, best known for his work in twin studies and behavioral genetics. Basically, he's one of the fathers of this domain, behavioral genetics. He's one of the most cited psychologists in the 20th century. And since I have only 200 citations in Scholar, I... <laughs> <laughs> and he's the author of several books in, on genetics, including behavioral genetics, G is for Genes, which is a great book, and most recently, Blueprint, How DNA Makes Us Who We Are. So, Professor Robert Plumming, thank you so much for coming. How are you today? Fine, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. I really like your podcast. Thank you so much. It's a great honor. Now, I'm recording this at 10 a.m. Israel time, but it is... 8 a.m. in London time. And before we start, this is like one of, of your productivity tips. So one of the reasons that you are highly cited is that you just get up early and start working early. Yeah, yeah, I'm kind of, it's kind of um, uh, embarrassed to say, but I try to get up at three in the morning and work until seven or so. And I just find I'm just so much more productive that time of day. And, and then I can... be unstressed the rest of the day kind of thinking well it's just gravy you know I've already done probably the better work I'm going to do so I can relax a bit more during the rest of the day so I think people do their big individual differences and I think people just need to find out you know pay attention to those differences and work with what they've got you know yeah definitely definitely you know in Israel the first Zionist tell you must get up early in the morning but you know not all people are uh, early are risers early yes yeah, so uh, early riser but as a faculty member so how does it uh how how does it work with your university obligation because some courses are in the morning and some meetings are in the morning so just out of curiosity because I'm also a faculty member how does it yeah. work that you that you go that you wake up at three up until seven and then you need to go to sleep or summer you know I I just like um uh, Napoleon and Winston Churchill I take power naps you know so I take five or ten minute naps during the day I've just always been very lucky you know I Maybe because I'm sleep deprived somewhat but I can <laughs> fall asleep in just a minute or two I can have a meeting in five or ten minutes and just say oops I need a bit of a nap before the meeting and I can just go to sleep for two minutes and wake up so it's a it's a real gift in yes. a way partly it's training though I find every I think everyone could um do this to some extent um and it's one of the reasons I don't like to travel so much because that really does screw up these sorts of routines. But you can't say training if we are talking about DNA. 
but we will come to that in a moment. <laughs> okay, so let's start by defining the terms. We have behavioral genetics and we have evolutionary psychology. Now, evolutionary psychology focused on the similar across different human beings, yes. while behavioral genetics focused on what distinguished me from my friend. And what part of this difference is due to my unique DNA? Is this is a fair one-line summary? Yes, it's a, a very important one too. We have 3 billion base pairs of DNA and all of us have the same DNA sequence for about over 99% of all of those DNA, we call them nucleotide bases, the steps in the spiral staircase of the double helix of DNA. So we're in, in our type of genetics, we're interested in the 1% of the DNA sequence that makes us different. It makes us individuals. The 99% is what makes us human. And so evolutionary psychology tends to study um, what we call things at a normative level. That is, what make what is a human? What do humans do as compared to other species? Whereas we're talking about what makes humans different. And so there are two very different perspectives. And a lot of the misinterpretations that we get into have to do with people mixing those two levels of understanding. So let me just recap because I think it's very important. My DNA, what we call AGCT, this is a very long sequence of 3 billion letters, AGCT. And if I put my sequence in comparison with a, with a chimp or an ape, I will get 99% similarity. I have A, he has A. I have T, E has T. And basically, it it is well understood because my eyes over here and my eyes mechanism is very much alike. It basically is the same. So we are, and chimps are 99% similar. And me and you, we are 99.9%. .9%. So approximately out of 1,000 different letters, you will have A, I will have T. This mm -hmm. is like, so, and this is one to a thousand difference. It's what makes me Roy and you Robert. Yeah. And if you have 3 billion base pairs of DNA, that still gives you millions of DNA differences. And this million of DNA differences is what we call behavioral genetics. And again, now you are a professor of psychology and you are one of the most cited uh, psychologists in the 20th century. And my question is, one, under which paradigm or discipline or, or domain does behavioral genetics uh, lie? A, under psychology, and this is a part of psychology, or B, under genetics? And B, does it matter? Yeah, very good question. Thank you. Um, by behavioral genetics, we mean the genetics of behavior and particularly behavioral differences. So I tend to talk about the behavioral sciences. It really started mostly in psychology because psychology, for me at least, is the study of behavior. Not, not necessarily external behavior, but also internal behavior like thoughts and feelings and all of that. But other fields now are becoming very uh, excited about genetics, like economics, for example, which has a very strong uh, behavioral component. You know, all the Nobel Prizes seem to come from no Nobel, uh, from economists doing work in psychology, basically, like Kahneman, who you've interviewed. So um, I'm not hung up on definitions, but um, I think it's interesting to see that genetics will cut across all the life sciences. The DNA revolution is revolutionizing all the life sciences, by which I mean, you know, biology and medicine and 
and and and the behavioral sciences as well anything to do with living aspects of organisms so um i think it's important to uh say that this isn't just psychology um and it's really the genetic study of behavior just like medical genetics is the genetic study of medical phenomena or evolutionary genetics is the study of genetics as it impacts evolution now in one of your latest interviews you spoke about this how genetic transformed the field of psychology and you said that in the 50s most of the the world war ii and the holocaust the main idea the main focus was on like behaviorism like skinner watson and they said okay we don't want to speak about nothing just a black box and we just want to to inspect it or investigate it as an input output black box mm-hmm. and this was due to what happened in world war ii and could you please elaborate on this and then i will ask my question yeah okay well it started before world war ii it started in 1924 with jb watson's famous book in which he said you know give me a dozen babies and i'll turn them into anything you want a beggar or a thief or a banker so but not, a, you... but but not a medical student because it didn't had it, it it didn't give a formula to increase the iq by 20 points <laughs> true enough and i know he it, it's a he, he wrote a popular book and he knew he was exaggerating but nonetheless that quote is one of the most highly cited quotations in psychology and that's it shows how this input output box that you talked about it called behaviorism we're on, we're not going to do introspection anymore we're, we're going to study behavior objectively from the outside but that led to environmentalism because what you study if you're looking at it as a black box is input output so you shock the rat in a cage and you look at what the rat does So that led to the idea that we are what we learn and learning psychology dominated psychology for decades. So that was in the 1920s. And then, of course, in the 1930s with Nazi Germany and eugenics, that really um, uh, forestalled most human behavioral genetic research really until the 60s, 50s and 60s. You know, by the way, Stanley Milgram birthday was two days ago. in august 15 so it is very interesting okay now uh let me let me go in in the last 10 years we have seen many books many good books on genetics and it's important now we had for example we have a troublesome inheritance which was uh i think which is a great book by nicholas wade and we have who we are and how we get here by david like and my question is i read your book and it's a fabulous read but In your opinion, and I will give you my opinion uh, in, in, a, in a moment, what is your true sense that you bring to the table that distinguish you from all the other books in the field of, yes, DNA is very important and it's going to control almost every aspect of our lives? Yeah. Well, the focus of my book is on individual differences. Some of the books you talk about are talking about more normative aspects, like what makes us human. So we're definitely focused on what makes us different and the extent to which inherited DNA differences make us different. The other way in, much, in which my book differs is that I've been doing research in the field for 50 years. And for most of my career, I just kept my head down and did my research and tried to stay out of controversy and thinking that in the end, 
if psychology is an empirical science, data will eventually rule. And, you know, it's not for certain, like sociology for a while in the 70s, you wondered if it was going to continue to be a science or if it was going to go off into philosophy or something. But um, I, I so I, I did the research and I didn't stick my head above the parapet. Um, but now, after 50 years, given all that we've learned, I think some of the biggest findings in the behavioral sciences have come from behavioral genetics because we have not ignored environment. We've studied genetics and environment together, whereas environmentalism just never even thought about genetics. They just assumed everything's environmental. And as a result, all that research was confounded. So after these big findings, which I hope we'll get into, then I would have been happy. That was 30 years into my career. And then the DNA revolution came along which just changes everything because we can now measure DNA differences. We don't have to study it indirectly by way of twin studies or adoption studies. So given all of this and the fact that the DNA revolution is really going to transform, not it's already transforming science, it's going to transform society. These are going to be really important, um, translatable sorts of findings. Um, and I think it's important that people have the DNA literacy to be able to discuss these issues intelligently rather than having knee-jerk reactions, you know, which we used to get in psychology. Genetics, bad. Environment, good. You know, and that's not, not correct. So the reason I wrote my book is to tell people about these huge uh, discoveries we've made and to let them know that the DNA revolution is happening. It's not one of those things we say, well, maybe in five years or 10 years. It's happening right now. And so people do need to know about it. And I think, and my hope is to be able to discuss these things intelligently as adults without getting into the culture wars of, you know, are you on my side or are you uh, an enemy, you know? And I, I've been... I was really worried when the book came out a couple of years ago, how people would react. And I've been tremendously relieved and pleased to see that the public is really quite accepting of these ideas in part, I think, because you, I bet you there's not a week goes by where there isn't some story in the newspaper about DNA, maybe not my sort of DNA, but about DNA. So people are hearing DNA, 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 and I think it sinks in and it prevents that, knee-jerk reaction about, oh, genetics is bad. So um, it's, I've, I've, you know, it's really been tremendously gratifying to me to be able to talk to public groups and to be interviewed on podcasts like this, where people are generally quite excited about these sorts of findings and not so afraid of them anymore. So that to me is progress, you know? But and it seems that this is like the worst time or the worst timing ever in the history of uh, American academia, you know, to discuss those things. And Steve Shu was banished from the position of a vice president for research for his research on intelligence and the genetic component. And we can go further and further. Charles, Charles Mary cannot speak in any, in almost all American university without being like a roasted. So in in the era or in the atmosphere of the PC, of the strong PC, and you say and you lay out very massive findings that one cannot question, okay? They are so massive, one cannot question. And when we come to those findings in a moment, it's like, like the 
the PC atmosphere now that that now we are feeling in uh, American academia just like cannot have this intelligent discussion. What's your take on that? Well, um, one of the reasons I left the UK about 25 years ago, US 25 years ago to come to the UK was that back then, you know, we're talking about the early 90s, the religious right was really coming on quite strong. And even in academia, you can't, you couldn't like tell a God joke or something like that. You know, people would get very upset. And that was starting to bleed over into other areas. Once you stifle free speech, it's not going to end. You know, people use, um, they want to, if, if, if stifling free speech suits their purposes, they're happy about it, but they're also dumb because it will always come around and bite them too. So I do think of academia, if it's anything, it's got to be a venue for free speech and for open discussion about issues. And, you know, you and I can disagree about something, but it doesn't mean we have to be disagreeable or get upset about it. You know, it's, it should be fun to talk about differences of opinion and that sort of thing. So that's what I was missing. I was beginning to see that that was going to be tougher in the U.S. And so the UK, I spent a lot of time, my wife is English and spent a lot of time in the UK, and I felt it was a freer, more intellectual sort of place. I came to understand, though, that, um, you know, they say in England that um, Americans have no sense of irony or sarcasm, <laughs> you know, that is, we're not subtle. Well, I came to understand that um, it's, much, it's much more subtle in England. However, it's also much freer. I mean, you know, the intellectual atmosphere is much better, I think, and open. I feel I can say just about anything at the um, at my university. So um, I, th I think you're right, you know, to be, we should all be concerned about any sort of restriction of free speech. And um, genetics is uh, sometimes central to that. Right now, it's there's other issues going on, but it could well come back to uh, genetics um, as well. So uh, stay tuned, I suppose. We shouldn't take it for granted, though. That's for sure. Let me tell you one thing, because I think you said stifles free speech, and this is one thing, but there is stifles free speech, and there is stifle solid facts. And I think, you know, when you say your opinion, okay, your opinion, I, I don't know, this is so rude, and this is not, uh, this is so unorthodox that you need to back it up with a lot of data. But if you have a lot of data, and if you say this is a fact, or as uh, your vice, uh, your George Bush used to say, true fact, so <laughs> then this is something completely different. But that's and, a lot better than the the pre previous president saying alternative facts, right? <laughs> and but I mean, it really is an issue now, you know, I mean, if you say, I mean, science doesn't have the um, uh, authority it used to have. I mean, if I say, well, as a scientist, I say this is a fact. People will say, yeah, and, and who are you? I mean, there's other, you know, so people aren't as willing to just accept it as dogma, nor should they. So that's why I like to come on and talk to people about it and say, look, here's the data. And as you said, I find it, you know, if you have an open mind, I just don't see how you can deny the importance of inherited DNA differences in behavior. You know, but people when, still do, much less than they used to. When I wrote my intelligent book, I 
I came to the, I came to the conclusion that intelligence gives you like glasses that you see the world in a much clearer, more equal way. Because if you look at the U.S., there is inequality everywhere. But if you put on your intelligent glasses and inspect everything through the intelligence, the U.S. is like of the most equal opportunity, equal states ever. Because it measures everything according to your ability, and cog- and cognitive ability is one of the most important abilities in Western societies. So it's very important that you put on the intelligence glasses, the DNA glasses, and etc. Now, my in my opinion, one of the most important aspects of findings of your book that you know I wrote. I, I read a lot about intelligence and DNA, but one thing that strikes me is a chapter, uh, I think that this is a third chapter, called The Nature of Nurture. And in this chapter, you say the following thing. You say that in the regarding the role of environment, of nature, usually the research refer uh, to nature, to nurture at, as something that happens to the rat. You shock a rat, you poison a rat, you you starve a rat, and then you check what the rat is going to do. But in much more complex nurtures, like like financial crisis, nurture and nature coexist together. It it is nature that influences how you are going to perceive, how you are going to react, how you are going to behave in such scenarios. And this is a great distinction between what is the true nurture or what is the true nature of nurture. So could you please elaborate on this point? Yes. Well, I'm glad you're pointing that finding out because that is one of the top 10 findings in behavioral genetics called the nature of nurture. It began in the mid-1980s when we um, began to include environmental measures in our genetic studies, like twin and adoption studies. And to my amazement, we found that these environmental measures like parenting or life events or watching television, which are used as quintessential measures of the environment, actually show significant and substantial genetic influence. And at first people said, okay, well, that just shows that your 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 studies are not worthwhile because how can an environmental measure show genetic influence? The environment doesn't have DNA, but it totally misses the point. It's, it comes from that view that you set out at the beginning, the old stimulus response black box idea. The environment is what happens to you, but calling a measure an environmental measure doesn't make it an environmental measure. Like if you think of the most widely used measure of the environment in the social sciences, it's life events. You know, so there are these scales of life events and it's, they show about 25% heritability, meaning the differences between people and their responses to these questions about major events that have affected them. Car accident, for example. So Yeah, okay. or the top ones are like um, divorce, financial difficulties, having uh, conflicts with people at work. So they show genetic influence. And if you stop and think just for a minute, it seems to me that isn't the environment out there like the experimenter shocking a rat. That's your experience. And you it's not 
out there independent of you. You have a lot to do with whether you have get divorced, as I know, because I've been divorced three times, or if you um, get in financial difficulties. It's not like poor you, hapless you sitting there and the world is affecting you. You know, this is you interacting with your environment to create your experiences. And that's where the genetics comes in. What the my feeling is that the way the environment works, the way genetics works actually, is not to hardwire you to be a certain way from the moment of conception. It's to just give you a nudge, like those intelligence glasses you mentioned, so that you begin to see the world differently. You, you select environments and modify environments and even create environments that are correlated with your genetic tendencies. So it we could talk about intelligence, but it's easier to think of if you've seen musically gifted young kids or mathematically gifted young kids. You, you, they don't need the best teachers in the world. You could almost not stop them from developing their skills. I mean, like with a musically gifted kid, you, you, you don't you almost have to put them in a closet because today they've got their friends, they've got Spotify, they can get the music that they want and you, they don't need instruments. I mean, they can bang on a pot or they can sing or, you know, so it's hard to stop them from kind of fulfilling their genetic propensities not because they're hardwired that way, but because that's the way their genetic, the gen genetics nudges them to use their experience, to foster their developmental proclivities. So that's kind of a highfalutin way of saying it, but, it, but it's basically the idea that the environment isn't what happens to us. The important environment is our experience, how we use the environment. Now, if this wasn't mind-blowing enough for you, let's dive into divorce. <laughs> now, okay. now, you get divorced three, three times. My parents got divorced. My sister got divorced. And in my intelligence lectures to 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 the general public, I usually mention, you know, Charles Mary in, in the bell curve, the Zerar, there is a correlation between a lower IQ and tendency to get divorced in the first five years. As Linda Gottfriedson once said, if intelligence is a measure of getting good decisions, then, a pro then getting divorced is not a good decision or marry the wrong person is not a good decision. So it must somehow encapsulate into this idea. Now, again, it doesn't work all the time. You get divorced. You get divorced three times. Elon Musk got divorced. So it, it's not one-to-one. -one, but what usually we know about divorce, that your tendency, your tendency to divorce, to get divorced is proportional or is highly correlated with your parents' tendency to get divorced. And many people throughout history said, ah, okay, this is an environmental exactly. measure because you saw bad example of bad relationship. But what you said after Swedish... Uh, uh, research because in 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 the Netherlands they have all the data, all the data available. This it's not the case. Yes, well that is a good example. It's a hard one for people to swallow. But the point is the one that you just made. You got a correlation between parents and kids. So parents divorce more, kids are more likely to get divorced. As you say, it's almost hard to resist interpreting that environmentally. As you said, of course, kids are more likely to get divorced if their parents are divorced because they have bad role models for relationships. 
same thing. Yeah, you know, it raises my blood pressure to read newspapers because there's always these stories trying to scare parents saying, here's a correlation between, say, parents reading to their kids and how well their kids do at school. And you don't even say it's causal. I mean, it's just assumed you think it's causal. So then parents who don't read a lot to their kids start feeling bad and they think you're going to make their kids sit down and they're going to read to them, you know, that sort of thing. So it's really kind of wicked, this tendency to interpret any correlation as causal, you know, and all one of the first things you learn in statistics, or I think people generally know the phrase correlation does not imply causation. And that correlation between parents' divorce and kids' divorce, yeah, it could go that way. It could be that parents uh, who divorce have an environmental effect on their kids that make their kids more likely to divorce. But the other big thing that environmentalists just ignored for a century is that parents and offspring are 50% related genetically. So if there is genetic influence on divorce, then it would exp it could explain that correlation. And it does largely. And how can there be genetic influence on divorce, people would say. But again, if you just think about it, what makes me get divorced? I mean, it isn't just something that happens to me. I don't just wake up one day and get these divorce papers. You know, it's a relationship and relationships involve our, our behavior to a great extent. I mean, environment is not what happens to you, is how you react to what happens to you. Exactly. This is like, again, you need to go over and over again because this is so mind-blowing. But not even react to, create. So um, to, to cut to the end of the story, where does this genetic influence come from? And we and others have shown that it isn't as much intelligence, as you said, it's more personality. And what's interesting to me is that about maybe half of the genetic influence on divorce comes from personality characteristics like uh, sensation-seeking, joie de vivre, you know, people who just get a lot of enjoyment out of life. Well, you could see where that would make you an attractive partner initially, but you can also see that those might not be characteristics that are particularly good for a long-term relationship because every relationship, no matter how good it is, becomes less exciting as time goes by. I mean, it might be deeper and there's certainly very good things about a long-term relationship. I would say I'm currently married for 30 years now. So, you know, there are definitely advantages to it, but you could see that the very- Don't break, don't break the chain, Robert. Don't break the chain now. <laughs> I'm I'm too old too, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's interesting to me to think that the, the the genetics comes from those personality characteristics that make you desirable initially, but might actually uh, be augur uh, a poor outcome in the long run because you're looking more for sensation seeking and and uh, you know excitement, I suppose. Please give me the data. If you, if we have a lot of data about adopted children, and then we see that if the uh, the original, the genetics, the bi the by by the biology parents who yeah. they never met one week after birth, they got divorced. Yeah. Then the probability of them getting divorced is going to raise, just yes. like they were being raised in the same home, but. If the adopted, the adopt, adopted parents got divorced, it yeah. doesn't matter. 
Yeah, it's not quite that strong. You know, it's it's a little, it's a bit of both. I mean, there's some relationship between adoptive parents' divorce and adopted kids' divorce, but it's not nearly as strong as the relationship between biological birth parents and their adopted away children's resemblance in terms of divorce. So again, to summarize this, we've we've known for a long time that parents who divorce have kids who are more likely to divorce. But again, people interpret that correlation causally environmentally. And what we're saying is, no, there's genetics here. And the adoption data from Sweden provide good evidence that there is similarity between parents getting divorced and their children's getting divorced, even when those parents and children never lived together. They only share genes and not environment. So I think the adoption study is a very powerful and direct way of making this point. And again, another example is that your level of education, I think, is strongly correlated with the number of books in the home that you grew in. And many people thought throughout like the last 20, 30, 50 years that this is correlated since there is an environmental cause. You see books and then you are yeah. more likely to read. But again, it's it, uh, it neglects or ignores the genetic factors because me as a parent have special has certain genes that uh, attract me to buy and read more books and this is a very important thing yeah but you're accepting um a conclusion that was really hard fought and that is socioeconomic status called ses has three components it's the educational attainment how many years of schooling um it's occupational status um, which is, you know, different um, from that. And then also income. And so people put them together and think of that as the, really the most, probably most widely used measure of the environment. But as you're pointing out, those things all, educational attainment, occupational status, income, all show substantial genetic influence. So this so-called environmental index, SES, is really at least half due to genetic differences. So that when it correlates with something like, not just books in the home, but also how well the kids in that family read, it doesn't prove environmental influence. In fact, it's a safer bet to say that those environmental correlations are genetic influences in disguise. And what we find is in on average, those sorts of correlations are mediated 50% by inherited DNA differences. And again, all, all it would be really neat if after this talk, you know, people at least stop and say, you know, when they read about a correlation between say parenting and kids' outcomes, they stop and say, well, wait a minute now, they're 50% related genetically. Couldn't genetics be involved? And, and you'll find when you do that, there's nothing that you can exclude genetic influence from because you know, genetics is ubiquitous. You know, one of the, the first law, I talked about 10 sort of principles of behavioral, discoveries of behavioral genetics. And the first one is everything is heritable. In the 1970s, when I started graduate school in psychology, I never heard about genetics. And then, and, and you know, it was dangerous actually to talk about genetics back then because it was still after the Second World War and it was, you know, still very much dominated by environmentalism. And so we've gone from the 70s to say the 90s or so, where we now say everything's heritable. 
I mean, it's, that's a dramatic transformation. And I think most psychologists now um, are willing to accept that inherited DNA differences make a di big difference, not just on a few traits, but for all traits. I, I find what's amazing now is to say, here's a challenge. Try to find any trait in psychology that's reliably measured in an adequately powered study that does not show significant genetic influence. I mean, it just shows you how the things have, we've gone 180 degrees, you know, from saying exactly. nothing's heritable to saying everything's heritable. You got to start with the assumption that any trait you want to talk about shows genetic influence. It is like the other challenge, which give me any intelligence test that doesn't show uh, ethnic differences. Okay. And you just cannot do it. By the way, I think that in Charles Mary, the bell curve, which is the most cited book that people never read, <laughs> you, you, he kept saying SES over and over again. And I think that the main po point of the book is to show that it doesn't, that SES doesn't cause low intelligence or high intelligence. It's the other way around. It is intelligence that is responsible to your socioeconomic status. And I think it's very important. I think this is the main point of the book intelligence from intelligence to the socioeconomic status and know the other way around now mm. now one thing that i i promise myself that i must you know uh, open with you is that when i wrote my intelligence book i noticed that there are two hard to swallow concepts one is the overlapping distributions and people are, are, are it, it's all, all the aggregate truths some truths are only aggregate for many people and the other is that genetic doesn't mean deterministic. And you emphasize the last point over and over again in your book, because when I see you, and if I'm not into this genetic research, I say, okay, so you, my tendency to get divorced is genetics and genes are deterministic. If I have like a blue eye genes, then I will have blue eyes. And if I have divorce gene, I will get divorced. But this is not how it goes at all. So please yes. elaborate on this point because I think mm -hmm. it's very crucial. Up to this point, we need you know to make clear that there are single gene and polygenes, and they exactly are extremely right. different. Yes, well, that's exactly the point, and this is probably the biggest um, uh, issue in terms of people not understanding what it means to say there's genetic influence. And part of the problem that you implied here is that. People learn about genetics from Mendel, and Mendel studied single gene, monogenic effects. He found mutations in pea plants that were necessary and sufficient for the development of a disorder. So if you were a pea plant and you have a mutation for wrinkled seeds, you will have wrinkled seeds no matter what your environment. Um, so it's necessary and sufficient. So it's hardwired. There's nothing you can do about it. There are thousands of single gene disorders in humans. For example, um, phenylketonuria was one of the first ones discovered that causes about 1% of institutionalized mental retardation. So it, it's um, a single gene in that it's necessary and sufficient. So that's how people learn about genetics. And the, the difference though, is that in for common disorders in medicine, as well as in psychiatry, we don't, we're not talking about a single gene. 
Genetic influence, we now know, due to the DNA revolution, is caused by thousands of tiny differences. For intelligence, we have like 10,000 different genes which are responsible to your intelligence. They just contribute to it. And what that does is it shifts it from deterministic, hardwired, to probabilistic. And and so people say, well, you know, it doesn't prove anything that it's, it doesn't, you can have genes for alcoholism and it doesn't mean you're going to be alcoholic. But that's also true for all of medicine. You know, heart, heart attacks, for example, are about 40% heritable. And we now have DNA that can predict that. But you can have a high genetic propensity for heart attacks and not get heart attacks if you follow the advice we're all supposed to follow about eating well. And, and all it means, this probabilistic thing, all it means is our correlations are not one. If a correlation is one, as it is between a single gene and a disorder, then, then it's deterministic. But our correlations in psychology is not, are never one. They're, you know, we're lucky to get a correlation of 0.3, which explains 10, 9% of the variance. And yet we make <laughs> big research never get to 0.5. Never. Yeah. 0.5 is like, you know, like the best day of your life. Yes. But we're getting there in genetics. So we can come on to that. But, you know, it, it bothers me when people say, well, you know, you're, it's only probabilistic. Well, all of our predictions, you know, name one prediction in society um, that isn't probabilistic. You know, things like smoke two packs of cigarettes a day. What are your chances of dying from lung cancer? They're nowhere near 100%. They're probably like 50% or less because you but then you a lot say of other things kill you. My probability to die from, from, uh, from lung cancer is are more, more. This is a counterfactual. If this is a very hard grammar thing. If I would have never smoked in my life. So so this is just like it raises your probability. And, and again, this is what we say about risk group. If you are in a risk group of heart attack, you need this knowledge in order to alter your life, to alter your behavior. And I think it was the, the manager of the NHS who said that people in the future will, will say not... Uh, dealing with those data was unethical, yes? Yes. That's Francis Collins, who was the director of the Human Genome Project, as well as director of the National, Inst <clears throat> National Institutes of Health in the United States. And he said 10 years ago that um, with, he says in the near future, all, all newborns will be screened genetically because all of medicine is moving towards uh, predicting and preventing disorders rather than waiting for them to occur. It seems like a no-brainer, really. You know, if you can predict a heart attack early in life, and DNA is the best early warning system we have because your inherited DNA differences don't change throughout life. So we can take um, adult DNA that, predict, uh, uh, um, DNA that predicts differences in heart attack risk in adults and create a score that combines many of those little effects. We call it a polygenic score. And you could predict someone's risk for heart attacks, not as an adult, but as a newborn. And then if you can do that, you can begin to work towards preventing and these disorders. And so that's why medicine is very keen on this. And it's it's going to come to medicine first. But then I think we'll, in the behavioral sciences, we'll profit from 
those advances in the medical sciences in what we call genomics. And so, this is the premise of your book, G is for Genes, that we ignore this information in one of the most important fields, education. Yes, yes. We can now, it's actually the strongest, we call it polygenic score predictor in the behavioral sciences is the prediction of educational achievement. So in the U UK, we have these national exams that are administered at the end of compulsory schooling at age 16 called GCSE scores. And um, we can predict over 15% of the variance in GCSE scores. And what that means is that, you know, the kids in the bottom 10 percentile, uh, maybe 15% go on to university, whereas in the top 10 percentile, something like 75%. And you can predict just by screening the, the DNA. Just by screening the DNA. Yeah. And then people say, well, but it's only 15% of the variance. And so I like to point out in the behavioral sciences to explain 15% of the variance is what is that? A correlation of almost 0 0.4, 0 0.39. Yeah. There aren't many examples of prediction at that level, just because behavior is complex and no one thing is going to predict every all, all of it. And in contrast, I think what's a great example um, is an environmental factor that um, we spend a lot of money on, 40 million pounds a year, doing evaluations of schools. So these outsider examiners go into schools unannounced and they they stay there for two days. They observe in classrooms, interview teachers, parents, janitors, every the kids. And it's the best sort of rating of school quality you can get. And on the basis of that, we create these league tables, we call them, saying which schools are the best and which are not so good. And parents change their lives. They move to districts where they're better schools. They pay hundreds of thousands of pounds to get their kids in the best preschool. So they get into the best primary school. So they, you know, et cetera. So the question Oxbridge, I asked is- Oxbridge, we, we all want to go to Oxbridge. Yeah, well, yeah, but- um, let me let, but let, let me, me just you. say though the point of this was how much variance in these GCSE scores can you explain with these school quality ratings? It just doesn't matter. Give me your genes and the genes will take care of your education. Now, with your permission, but I, the point I, I, is I, the, the, the real answer to that is four percent. So we're explaining fifteen percent. We can predict fifteen percent of the variance with DNA, and we can only explain four percent of the variance with these school quality ratings. You know, so I think that's an amazing contrast and a good repost to people who say, oh, well, you're just explaining 15% of the variance. It's just a lot of variance to explain. The right spouse, and it will be and it will be much more meaningful. Now, with your permission, let me ask you a personal question because I must, and since the divorce thing is very interesting to me, let's say that you have like your polygenic score for divorce is higher than the average person, and you uh you proved it throughout your life three times. This is a record. And let's say that you could go back to 40 years ago to young Robert Plumbing and say, what would you say to him that can alter his behavior in the context of divorce? Again, how can you change from the probability of getting divorce to divorce? And I, I'm sure that you have thought about it many times. Well, there's several things to say about it. First, we don't have uh, genome-wide association studies of divorce yet. 
So there is no polygenic score for divorce yet. There probably will be eventually because divorce is so common. You could get do a poly, you could do a what we call genome wide association study of it. But the other thing is, I think um, uh, people differ in their lifespan. So what I needed in a relationship as a young man differs from what I needed as in middle midlife and differs from what I needed later in life. And so early in life, I looked for crazy women. I wanted women who were exciting and, you know, it was all fireworks. Well, that is, you know, that's good for for what, you know, what I wanted at the time, but it certainly isn't a good sign for a long-term relationship. But, but you know, so you're assuming my point. You bring me back to the deterministic part. You said, if I would have gone back and speak with my younger self, there is nothing I could say that will prevent him from, or prevent the personality from seeking wild women in my 20s or 30s and settle on and settle in my 50s. So again, it leads again, because we spoke about deterministic versus probability versus the probability. But I think that this very question shed a light on this very issue that we can, if you, if your personality or if your personality has a tendency to such a behavior, it is very hard to alter it. You can't say, listen, you should seek for a more calm woman because the younger Robert Plumin wouldn't have been listening. Um, yeah, that's a good point. There's a lot to say about this. You know, I mean, first of all, I don't assume divorce is bad. I, I think that, you know, our, we need different types of relationships as we grow up. And I first got married at 19 to a, a girl I had known for several years. And uh, the chances that two intelligent, interesting people will grow the same way is not great unless we're uh, we're forced by society as we would have been in the earlier 1900s that divorce was so unheard of. You know, it just wouldn't have been an option. But now we have greater freedom to create environments correlated with our genetic propensities, which change during the life course. You know, I mean, it isn't that things that are genetic are unchanging, you know. Um, so I think we're freer now to create environments, including relationships, that are, are, are more compatible with us as we age. So... Um, I don't okay, know. Okay, okay. I, 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 very, I uh, this is a personal question because, but, yeah. but again, I think it it was very important to me. Now, uh, what the I think which leads me to the uh, to another important question: What is the role of parents? Doctor Russell Barkley, one of the world experts on ADHD, said in one of his lectures that parents to ADHD children come to him with a strong feeling of blame. What did we do wrong that caused Billy to develop an ADHD? And he says to them, it's not your fault. It's not your responsibility. Yeah. And I think so as a parent, what is, in your opinion, my fault and my responsibility? Because you said, okay, 15% of my uh, probability to get into higher education or pass this uh, modified SAT test are caused by my genes. And only 4% by my family moving to another town to a better school. So what is my role as a parent and what okay. is my responsibility as a parent? 
So first of all, that 15% was what we can predict today with DNA alone. The heritability of, of school achievement is more like 60%, 60%. So that still leaves 40%. But what we've learned is that that 40% isn't all nurture. That is, it's not due to systematic effects of the family environment. Most of it is due to non what we call non-shared environment. That is, environmental factors that make kids in a family different from one another. So we know that from adoption studies, particularly, where you get a third of adoptive families in the U.S. adopt a second child. Those are called adoptive siblings. They're, they grow up in the same family like siblings, but they don't share genes. They have different parents. Okay, so they're correlated zero genetically. And what we find is by adolescence, adoptive siblings correlate zero for IQ and zero for educational achievement, meaning growing up in the same family doesn't make them similar. The environment's important, but it's not due to those systematic effects of having the same parents and growing up in the same family. So that's like a double whammy. First of all, most of the variance is genetic. If you're a parent, you got to realize most of the variance is genetic. And then second, you got to realize the environmental variance isn't much to do with you either. You don't have those levers to pull. Now, so then parents say, well, then I just throw up my hands. There's nothing I can do. And my answer to that is no, there's a lot you can do. And But the, de the deal is you're not shaping a blob of clay to be what you want it to be. The importance of this message for parents is that you realize that kids are going to be who they're going to be, and you should enjoy that process, but help it too. That is, instead of imposing on your kid what you want the kid to be, give the kid exposure to different things. Find out what they like to do and what they're good at, because increasingly, I think it's appetites as well as aptitudes, and they go together. You know, kids aren't dumb. They they like to do what they're good at, and they they work it out. You know, they might try to force my kids to do music, and they like music, but they just didn't like to have to play piano, learn to play piano. And I felt to be a civilized person, they have to know to be able to read music. Well, it almost caused you know it caused major disruptions in adolescence because they were ornery, I think, which they inherit from me, and they said, "You want me to learn to play play the piano?" fine, I'm not going to learn to play the piano. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it got into real, you know, conflict. Uh, and and that was, you know, I should have instead realized that they saw that their friends without music lessons were composing music, you know, and were very good at it. And my kids were good at other things, but they, did, they didn't want to learn to play sheet music. That was for sure, perhaps because I was insisting that they do. But nonetheless, it's a good example of how it's better to find out what they like to do and help them to do it. And I, I think a good example is that it, it's a relationship. And you don't do things for people you love because you want them to do what you want them to do. You do nice things to people you love because you want life to be nice for them. So I don't do things for my spouse because I say, well, okay, if I do this, she'll end up being a better person or she'll learn to do this or that. No, I just do things for people I love because I love them and I want life to be nice for them. And I, I know it sounds like a hokey, you know, message, but I do think it's very important, especially yuppie parents 
who wait until their late 30s to have kids. And then they're helicopter parents and they think they have to be tiger moms. And, you know, if one false move and their kids screwed up forever, and this is fostered by the media, you know, up until genetics came along, most of the research on the family influences were assuming mother blaming. So you find out what the mother does wrong, like from Freud, what the mother does wrong in the first few years of life that determine the kids' outcomes later in life. I mean, how wicked is that? Because it's just not true. There's no evidence that any of these Freudian things about breastfeeding and toilet training make one bit of difference in terms of later psychopathology, for example. So I think it's a really important message for parents. It doesn't mean you can't do anything. It just means you have to think about your kids in terms of a relationship. And by, by foisting your view of what they ought to be on them, it's probably counterproductive to a good relationship. And it sure isn't as much fun as stepping back a bit and watching your child become who they are. And a large part of that has to do with genetics. So one more thing, can I say, there's thousands of books on parenting and you can hardly find a word about genetics. Whereas I think the most important thing that parents need to know about child rearing is genetics. Read the nurture assumption. This is a great exactly book. Right. Okay. Harris's book. And, and boy, did that create a stink when it came out. Yes. Now, this is this was one hell of a book. And it's like Russell Barkley one uh, one said, you are a shepherd, not an engineer. Exactly right. You're a shepherd, not an engineer. And uh, it might, that Winnicott uh, intuition about good enough mother was correct. You just need to be good enough parent. And once you're good enough parent in modern society, when you have Spotify and you have YouTube and you have Google and you have all the access to all the information in the world, if your child is not heavily deprived and there is there are no heavily deprived child in Western society or almost none heavily deprived child in children in Western societies, the DNA will take care of, of itself. Would you agree? Yep, I, I would agree. And um, it it's so important. I get these heartrending messages from parents who say, I thought I was doing everything right. And then in the late teens, my child became schizophrenic, you know, because about 1% of the population becomes schizophrenic. And it's like all this blaming of themselves, which is how you started this conversation. You know, if something goes wrong, parents blame themselves for it. And I think it's important uh, for them to realize that they just don't have as much control as they think. And genetics predicts that kids in a family will be different. You know, one of the first, uh, one of the phrases I like about gene uh, genetics is that parents are environmentalists <laughs> until they have more than one child. Because with the first child, you can explain everything environmentally. You can explain it away post-talk. Your kid's shy because you didn't take her out much when she... You ask parents with a shy child, why do you think the child's shy? They'll give you one of two answers invariably. One is, I took her out too much when she was young. The other is, I, I didn't never take her out enough when she was young. <laughs> then they have a second child. And because shyness is one of the more heritable temperament characteristics early in life, the chances are, because they're only 50% similar genetically, the other one won't be as shy. And then you know, I always, I I always say that behaviorism, behaviorism is a way of thinking that you cannot hold if you have children. Well, it's at least more than one child. 
because you really can't explain everything away with one child. But then you see the second child and, and they're so different because they're 50% different genetically. Um, you, you, you can't think that you, you did that. And that's also true of you, you know, so that parents who have no history of schizophrenia can still have a child who becomes schizophrenic because children um, are a, a, a mashup of genes from many uh, generations. This is not just me and my wife. This is a, 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 a like a tree of my me and my ancestors and my wife and her, and her ancestors to our children. This is not like the Mendel view of okay, the, exactly. one gene, one gene from here and one gene from here, and then, and I think this is so so important. This is so important that you. And this is so mind-blowing. This is so counterintuitive that you need to state it over and over again. And with your permission, I think that it's immoral, just immoral to ignore genetics. Because if you have a very smart child, and then the second child or the third child is exactly. not as smart, and you are going to treat those two, child, those two children in the same manner, this is unfair. And oh, I worse, think, than, worse than that, though, you know, I think you you assume that the other child is lazy or just not yes, trying because yes. you know you've done the best you can. So why aren't they doing well at school? And this is exactly the the thing I grew up with. My I I always loved school. You know, I learned to read early. We didn't have any books in our house, but I went to the library, a public library, and I brought a wagon load of books home, and I was reading books, and I I did well at school. It was just easy for me. My sister, on the other hand, was slow to learn to read. She found school very difficult. And um, my, my parents were great about it. You know, they didn't blame my sister for being lazy or whatever. But I think a lot of people, including the teacher, said, well, your brother was doing so. How come? What's wrong with you? You know, but you got to recognize uh, first recognize genetic differences and then it respect those differences to a greater extent. And that's such an important message for parents, especially when they have more than one child, because they will be different. Can I have another question with your permission? Of course. Okay. So let, let's move on to another inflammatory subject, which is the tendency how, how DNA uh, influence your tendency to be gay or lesbian. And one thing that I want to know before you give us the the facts, the data, what do you think the gay community, the LGBT community, want their wants their results to be? Yeah. And this is like a very interesting question. Does we want the the results to be genetics or we want the results to be environmental? What does it mean? Yeah. Well, it's not my area of research, but I, I do know a bit about it. And as always, there's some genetic influence on sexual preference. Um, and early on in the genomics revolution, there was someone who said there was uh, genes on the X chromosome that influenced homosexuality. It turns out not to be true. But what was surprising to people is that the gay community uh, backed that up a lot. I mean, it, you know, you, as you're saying, you could think, well, maybe they'd be against that, you know, thinking that, um, no, this was just my choice. It had nothing to do with biology. But to the contrary, the community as a whole very much supported the idea of there being genetic influence. Because I think I mean, this is way, you know, way beyond my expertise or experience, but 
the sense you get from my gay friends is that it isn't just some uh, idiosyncratic, you know, I think I'll be gay today sort of idea. I mean, most of my gay friends felt that they were gay from very early in life. And, uh, you know, and they could cover it up for a while, but eventually they came out of the closet and just seemed a lot happier because it's, it's again, it's their genetic propensities kind of nudging them in certain directions. You know, for centuries, of course, uh, men had families and wives and kids who were gay, but they were able to cover that up. It didn't, you know, it wasn't hardwired, but in a way it's kind of nice in our society, we're freer to be who we are. And a lot of that has to do with genetics. So I do think, um, although I haven't, I can't cite a study to back this up, but I do believe that the uh, gay community, I know less about the lesbian community, but the gay community is supportive of the idea of genetic influence on sexual preference. So what do we know about adopted study, adoption studies? Of 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 what we know about her heritability. If 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 your parents are gay, is there any correlation that you will be gay? Yeah, there are adoption studies. It's very difficult to study because even now people are reticent to talk about um, their sexual preferences honestly. So the evidence that exists, um, mostly done by. Uh, a researcher at uh, Northwestern University, Michael, um, I've forgotten his name, but um, there is an adoption study that suggests genetic influence and that fits with the twin data as well, suggesting genetic influence. But it, you know, it's not high. I think it's more in the area of 40%, but that's still a lot in a way, but it's not everything and it certainly isn't deterministic. So we, we have two twins, or two identical twins, and if one twin is gay, then the probability of the other twin to be gay is about 40%. I think that's right. It might be a bit higher with twins, but um, with identical twins. And I'm not, I'm not aware of the dramatic study of identical twins reared apart in that case. You know, those are very dramatic data. They're, of course, very rare and almost yes. anecdotal because you know, to get identical twins who are gay, uh, who had been separated early in life, that's difficult to find. I think which leads me to your research, your your field of research about uh, twins, about uh, uh, when I read The Mismeasure, The Mismeasure of Men by Stephen Jay Gould, it, you can read the anger about Cyril Baird. He hates Cyril Baird. Yeah. And I have two questions. One, in your opinion, Cyril Bert, was Cyril Bert a bad person or that he faked the data? And two, does it matter? Well, the answer to the first Is question. It matter? I'm sorry. Is it matter? I think the last question first, it doesn't matter. We've actually published a paper that says, okay, excise, get rid of all of Bert's data and look at the rest of the world's literature. You get exactly the same result. So that's one issue. The other issue is that, uh, as you say, uh, Bert was a, a tall poppy. You know, he was coming out at a time saying genetics is important in education at a time when it was so environmentalistic that uh, he was a hate figure, really, for suggesting that. And um, I, 
there are three books now written about the, as it's called, uh, the Cyril Burt affair, or as two of the books felt, a fraud. Um, and it's a long story, but basically I think it's clear he collected data on identical twins reared apart. The war came along. He said his many of his records were destroyed. And uh, I, th my feeling is I think he was a serious scientist. Maybe later in life, things got sloppy. I mean, you could certainly point to um, idiosyncrasies in the data analysis that even though you supposedly added a dozen twins, the correlations were the same to the third decimal place, which you know can't happen, for example. But the main point is it doesn't matter that you can excise his data all together and you get exactly the same result, which means that his data at least were pointing in the same direction as the other data. It wasn't like his data gave you, you know, 100% heritability. No, they gave you heritability estimates very close to the rest of the world's literature. So if he was faking it at all, he was faking it pretty well. Well, not just faking it because he wouldn't have known what the world's literature 20 yes. years later would be he, saying. He was a first. But when I read The Mismeasure of Men, I didn't get the vibe of, okay, Cyril Bert was a bad person, but the Minnesota studies proved basically the same. It, 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 I think it is like Gould or Gold just ignored, Gould. just ignored the facts and I will suspect that he did it for uh, ideological reason. It didn't yes. on because the mismeasure of man is like a uh, is like an answer to to the bell curve. And in a way, it's unfair because I think in many parts of the book he, he just ignores the data. Yeah. Well, you know, the first book along those lines um, was um, uh, Leon Kamen's book. The Science and Politics of IQ. Do you remember that? It was 1974. And he, there weren't many studies at that time. There were about 50 studies. And it was a, it, it was a popular book. It was um, cited about 2,000 times in psychology. And um, in it, it's a forensic analysis of each study. So he says, oh, that study might have this problem. Then this other study might have that problem. And but, but without but stepping back and saying that study A have has this problem and the probability that study B has this problem times the probability study C has this problem is so tiny. Well, and misses the point, misses the forest for the trees. You step back, okay, all these studies have problems, but why is it they all come up with the same conclusion? That heritability is significant. But the famous quotation from his book, Leon Kamen's Science and Politics of IQ, is there is no evidence to make a prudent person accept a conclusion that heritability of intelligence is other than zero. But that's just because he dismisses every study for one reason or another reason, do you know? But the good thing about that, that was in the mid 70s when I was just starting out and it, it made people do bigger and better studies. So in the end, there was always this double standard, you know, that the, the quality and the evidence that you'd have to provide to get people to accept the possibility of genetic influence was incredibly higher than the evidence required for any sort of environmental explanation. But that's good for the field because in the end, it made our data much stronger. And to the point now, whereas you said early on, it's just hard to deny 
and some part of it, as you mentioned in the book, is part to the replication crisis. Since yes. the replication crisis, we are, and, if, and I spoke with Danny Kahneman about it, since the replication crisis, psychology gained so much because uh, all the methods now are much more robust. And people are concerned about replication. You can't just assume that some statistically significant finding is true. You now have, you know, and part of the problem is significance testing. I mean, this whole this whole replication crisis thing is a very big deal, I think. And as you say, it's changing science for the better. And I wrote a paper about this a couple few years ago, in a way, blowing our horn a bit about behavioral genetics findings, because what's what I've always liked about them is they replicate. And these are very big findings that replicate, you know, across the world. They're very strong sort of replications, like everything being heritable. Or one we didn't mention is increasing heritability for intelligence throughout the lifespan, which I think is another interesting counterintuitive sort of finding. So I think it's really interesting that behavioral genetics replicates. And part of the reason, I think, is we were less hung up on statistical significance and more concerned about effect size, that is, variance explained. And it's surprising, even now in the behavioral sciences, where people talk about this is related to that because it's a significant relationship. And what I hope listeners will always do is say, yeah, but what's the effect size? Because the si significance is just a function of sample size. You can have an incredibly tiny difference, and it can be highly significant statistically because you have big samples. A good example is, you know, people think, uh, girls are from Venus and boys are from Mars, that there's big sex differences. But, you know, girls are good at verbal stuff, boys are good at math and spatial. Those differences account for about 1% of the variance. So if all you know about a kid is whether they're a boy or a girl, you don't know anything about their verbal ability or their mathematical ability. There's a statistically significant difference when we have samples of thousands of boys and thousands of girls, but it isn't socially significant at all. Yet somehow people take this black and white message in, into their heads. Girls are good at verbal, boys are good at math. So people have to ask, yeah, but what's the effect size? And when you start to do that, you really then appreciate genetics because we're not talking about 1%, 10%, 20%. We're talking about 50% of the variance. There's nothing in the behavioral sciences that, you know, even begins to compare to that. As you said earlier, it's rare to explain, what did you say, 15% or I think even 5%. A lot of the findings we make a big deal about are explaining less than 5% of the variance when you subject them to the harsh spotlight of effect size, rather than just talking about statistical significance. Now, can we take behavioral genetics and zoom it out and then we can say something like, you know, we are interested in we are interested in the differences between nations. And according to behavioral genetics, the Germans, for example, tend to be more orderly. And the Italian, for example, tend to be more screamy or the Israeli. So can we do it? Can we zoom out or and we, uh, or when we say behavioral genetics is just me versus you. Yeah. Well, as I say in my book, the paperback edition of my book has an afterword where I talk about issues that have come up since the publication of the hardback 
copy. And one of those is this issue of group differences versus individual differences. And the first thing to say is that the causes of individual differences are not necessarily related to the causes of average differences between groups. Um, you know, uh, for example, um, man is a, um, a natural language user. That's at that normative level comparing the human species to other species. And that's most thing people would think is genetic. Um, and it's, it's natural selection having channeled genetic variation in that direction. So almost all of us, all human beings learn to speak. But does that mean that individual differences in, in learning to speak are heritable? And the answer is no, it doesn't have to be at all. And you can certainly think of circumstances where environmental factors could make the difference. So it's really important because many of the um, misinterpretations of genetic data come from studying uh, these average group differences. So that that's the first point. There's no necessary relationship between the two. The second is that we don't have good tools for nailing the causes of the average differences between groups. And so as a result, I have studiously avoided talking about mean differences between groups because there's going to be a lot more heat than light because we don't have a good, we can't nail it down. Whereas with individual Yet. differences within a population, we've got the tools to nail it down. So given the explosiveness of the average differences between groups, not just cross country, as you were talking about, but also, and most notably, ethnic group differences, I choose to stay away from it. And it might be cowardly in a way, but as I say in my book, I've got a lot to do with individual differences. Most of the variance is going to be due to individual differences. And we have tools to address it. So why not study tractable problems rather than getting into arguments for which there isn't going to be an empirical solution? Yet. Yes, I, 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 I totally understand. I, I live in Samaria and we live next to the Palestinians and all car accidents in my in my region, all, almost all car accidents, like 99% of all car accidents are caused by Palestinians who drive unethically and in a very high risk. And people say in Israel, there is a great debate. Why? Why do they drive in such a way that cause that risk themselves? And many people, you know, since the environmental uh, factor say, okay, this is a culture. This is, you need to change the culture. But, but maybe there is some other explanations but like again the culture culture could reflect the individuals is a possibility i mean so but again that's why i don't like to get into yes yes it's very inflammatory how but, are you going to resolve it yes know? but let me tell you one thing i i had a talk with gary jones he, he wrote the book mind hive about why your nation's iq is much more important than your own iq and he said you know many people are are, are so afraid of the genetic part versus the culture part and he says if we know something about medicine and genetics our probability to solve genetic problems is much higher than our probability to solve cultural problems. We don't know nothing about how to solve cultural problems. Yeah. So we we might want all those differences to be caused by genetics because in the end, in the long run, in the short run, 
we will have genetic solutions to those problems, where in cultural problems, we know nothing about how to alter or change culture. Sounds like a reasonable point of view. Okay, so Professor Robert Plumbing, first, thank you so much for your time. Your book, uh, just a second. Oh, your book, Blueprint, How DNA Makes Us Who We Are. And it's not just the height and 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 the gender and the shoe size. It's basically everything. <laughs> so first of all, thank you so much. First for your time today. Second for your great book. And third, but last but not least, all your 50 years of research. That, as I said before, Steve Shue told me a few few days ago that he feels like a parasite that sits on the giant pile of your research and just <laughs> extract things to his startup uh, companies. So first of all, thank you so much for everything. This is one. And in my, I, I have two questions, two final questions to all of my guests. One, could you please name one book that you read in the last five or 10 years that transform your way of thinking uh, or or how you perceive the world just one book that you recommend hmm. that's a tough one i read so many books and a lot hmm. of them are fiction books but sometimes i think fiction can change our views uh, a lot as well so that is really tough but i guess i'd have to i could name 50 books that have really changed my think 50 books okay the one i think i read most recently that i i i think changed me the most is anil seth do you know him a-n-i-l seth s-e-t-h who wrote a book it's basically about consciousness but he's a neuroscientist who's trying to study consciousness the way we see the world um from a neuroscientific point of view, you know, not the airy fairy mindfulness stuff that you hear about. And the thing that's amazing about that book and is relevant to genetics is that perception is very much an active process. He calls perception controlled hallucinations. You know, we don't see anything in the real world. All we're getting are these is this neural input that our brain converts into a film what about what's going on. Well, that's what I was just trying to think of. It's like being or something like that. Uh, being me or, you know, it's got being, B-E-I-N-G in yeah. the title. But you can't miss it. He has a um, a TED talk that's seen by 25 million people. That's probably yeah, yeah. a good place to start. But well, being it, you, being you. Being you. Okay, right, being good. You. Yeah, yes. it's, a, it's a great book. Um, and I had a talk with Christopher Koch on on this channel about, you know, consciousness and what does it mean? Being you, a new science of conscience, consciousness. Oh, yeah. And the it's, other, relevant to the, yeah. it's relevant to the genetics because that's the constructivist perspective on experience. The experience isn't what comes in, even at the level of sensation and perception. We create our perceptions of reality. They're controlled hallucinations. They're not real. And so that's where genetics has a lot of opportunity to come in and affect the way we experience things at the most basic level. This is great. And the other thing, since you are one of the most uh, cited psychologists in the 20th century, and I'm a young faculty member, uh, (laughs) not one of the highest cited, (laughs) there is like a 
there is like a productivity tip that you can give young scholars, young faculty members who start their journey in the field of science, how to be more productive? Because I think your work is so valuable, so important, so profound, so immensely great. And you and after I read your book, Blueprint, I said, okay, I cannot give you any tip. This is my DNA. Nevertheless, <laughs> please, although our DNA <laughs> is different, what is your best tip that you can give me as a young faculty member? Yeah, well, again, there's a lot I could say about that. The point you made is that we are all individuals. So I can't tell everybody get up at three in the morning and work because that's not going to work for some people. <laughs> but part of it is knowing who you are genetically, paying attention to the way you work best and when you think best. And then, but the more general advice uh, I would give is to find something you love to do. Now, I think that's also genetic. And it's, you know, I, I would... I'm so keen on this genetic stuff that I'm sure I would do it even if I weren't paid to do it. I mean, you know, because I think it's important and I just love doing it. So that's the, that you know, I don't, you can't make that happen though, but part of it involves um, paying attention. You know, it's sort of like mindfulness, waking up, don't be lost in thought all the time. Think about yourself. I'm always amazed at how many very intelligent academic people never turn that back on themselves and pay attention to themselves and what works for them, what makes them happy, you know, in terms of their work. So uh, I think that's, it, it sounds kind of airy-fairy, but I do think that's important advice. And, so, you know, I think if you ask most famous people, why are they doing what they're doing? They can give you the story, but when the truth comes down to it, they would, they'll often say, I don't know. Like, I don't know why it was I took a class in behavioral genetics as a graduate student and it floored me. I was flabbergasted. I said, that's it. That's what I want to do. I mean, this, I've never heard of genetics and yet it's obviously so important. Back then it was mostly just animal studies, but then why is it 39 other students in that class didn't go on to do it? They weren't interested. Why is it that it just appealed to me? And so I at least paid attention to that. I said, wow, that is really what I like to do. And it was it was at a time when it was very difficult to do it. You couldn't get money to do it. You know, it, it, it was because of Cayman's book, who I mentioned, it wasn't just bad science. It was bad scientists. <laughs> he was he was part of science for the people, you know, as as was um, Jay Gould, Stephen Jay Gould, who you mentioned. They believe science is for the people. That is, you don't do objective science. You do science that's good for the people. And it always irritated me tremendously that these Harvard professors are deciding what's good for the people, you know? Yes. So, um, so it, wasn't, it wasn't an easy time to get into genetics. But, you know, I was just so sure that's what I wanted to do. And then I persisted at it. And the other thing is, if you're going to do that, be in an area that's dangerous, you got to have a thick skin and you've got to be kind of centered and confident in yourself. And that's a little hard to um, uh, give to people. But I, I do think being more mindful about what we're doing is, is good advice. And then I would just say working hard, you know, um, in the absence of other things to do. I like doing this stuff so much that I would just do it. And but I'm also keen to 
get distracted. I mean, to have people say, well, why don't we do this? Why don't we go hear some music or something like that? And I think, you know, work-life balance is good to a point, but um, I, I definitely err more on the work side than I do on the life side because it's what I like to do. It's how I get enjoyment in life. And I think what you just said closed the loop regarding the parents' role because you said that you took a class about behavioral genetics and just and it just blew your mind. And I think that it gives a, a, and what you said before, that our role as a parent as parents is to expose exactly. our children to many, many things that someone, someday, some specific subject will resonate with them. And once they hit this resonate subject, they can move on. Exactly right. I think that's very well said. Robert Pluming, thank you so much for your time. It's been a great conversation. Thank you again. Well, I've enjoyed it very much too. Good luck <laughs> with your podcast. Thank you so much. All right. אם הגעתם עד לכאן, מגיע לכם כל הכבוד. אז תנו לי להגיד לכם שלושה דברים קצרים. הדבר הראשון, אם שמעתם משהו בשיחה שמעניין אתכם, שאתם רוצים לקחת הלאה, פשוט ספרו אותו לאנשים אחרים. משהו מעניין שאני אמרתי, משהו מעניין שהאורח שלי אמר, איזשהו רעיון שאתם רוצים לקחת אתכם לחיים, פשוט ספרו אותו לחבר או לחברה. זאת הדרך הטובה ביותר לזכור את הרעיונות מתוך השיחות האלה. הדבר השני, אם אתם רוצים לקחת חלק בקהילה שלנו ולפגוש ולדבר עם אנשים כמוכם, אתם מוזמנים לערוץ הטלגרם שלנו, שווה לכם מאוד. פשוט תראו עוד אנשים שמתעניינים מדברים מגניבים בדיוק כמוכם. והדבר האחרון, אם אתם יכולים, דרגו את הערוץ שלנו באפליקציית הפודקאסטים שלכם, זה יכול להיות בספוטיפיי, באפל פודקאסט או בגוגל פודקאסט, זה תהליך קצר של שתי שניות, הוא מאוד מאוד יעזור לנו להפיץ את הבשורה הלאה. שיהיה לכם כיף גדול וכיף בשיחה הבאה.